Introduction by Daniel Goleman It's a minor miracle this book exists. The lectures that form the basis of it were given in 1946 by the psychiatrist Viktor Frankl, a scant nine months after he was liberated from a labor camp, where a short time before he had been on the brink of death. The lectures, edited into a book by Frankl, were first published in Germany by a small publisher. The volume went out of print and was largely forgotten until that same publisher recently recovered it from its archives. Yes to Life, in Spite of Everything, has never before been published in English. During the long years of Nazi occupation, Viktor Frankl's audience for the lectures published in this book had been starved of the moral and intellectual stimulation he offered them and were in dire need of new ethical coordinates. The Holocaust, which saw millions die in concentration camps, included, as victims, Frankel's parents and his pregnant wife. Yet, despite these personal tragedies and the inevitable deep sadness these losses brought Frankel, he was able to put such suffering in a perspective that has inspired millions of readers of his best-known book, Man's Search for Meaning, and in these lectures. He was not alone in the devastating losses and his own near death, but also in finding grounds for a hopeful outlook despite it all. The daughter of Holocaust survivors tells me that her parents had a network of friends who, like them, had survived some of the same horrific death camps as Frankel. I had expected her to say that they had a pessimistic, if not entirely depressed, outlook on life. But, she told me, when she was growing up outside Boston, her parents would gather with friends who were also survivors of the death camps and have a party. The women, as my Russian-born grandmother used to say, would get gussied up, wearing their finest clothes, decking themselves out as though for a fancy ball. They would gather for lavish feasts, dancing and being merry together, enjoying the good life every chance they had, as their daughter put it. She remembers her father saying, That's living, at even the slightest of pleasures. As she says, they never forgot that life was a gift that the Nazi machine did not succeed in taking away from them. They were determined, after all the hells they had endured, to say yes to life, in spite of everything. The phrase, yes to life, Viktor Frankl recounts, was from the lyrics of a song sometimes sung sotto voce, so as not to anger guards, by inmates of some of the four camps in which he was a prisoner, the notorious Buchenwald among them. The song had bizarre origins. One of the first commanders of Buchenwald, built in 1937 originally to hold political prisoners, ordered that a camp song be written. Prisoners, often already exhausted from a day of hard labor and little food, were forced to sing the song over and over. One camp survivor said of the singing, we put all our hatred into the effort. But for others, some of the lyrics expressed hope, particularly this, whatever our future may hold, we still want to say yes to life, because one day the time will come, then we will be free. If the prisoners of Buchenwald, tortured and worked and starved nearly to death, could find some hope in those lyrics, despite their unending suffering, 
Frankel asks us, shouldn't we, living far more comfortably, be able to say yes to life, in spite of everything life brings us? That life-affirming credo has also become the title of this book, a message Frankel amplified in these talks. The basic themes that he rounded out in his widely read book Man's Search for Meaning are hinted at in these lectures given in March and April of 1946, between the time Frankel wrote Man's Search and its publication. For me, there is a more personal resonance to the theme of yes to life. My parents' parents came to America around 1900, fleeing early previews of the intense hatred and brutality that Frankel and other Holocaust survivors endured. Frankel began giving these talks in March 1946, just around the time I was born. My very existence, an expression of my parents' defiance of the bleakness they had just witnessed, a life-affirming response to those same horrors. In the rearview mirror, offered by more than seven decades, the reality Frankel spoke to in these talks is long gone, with successive generational traumas and hopes following one on another. We post-war kids were by and large aware of the horrors of the death camps, while today relatively few young people know the Holocaust occurred. Even so, Frankel's words, shaped by the trials he had just endured, have a surprising timeliness today. Recognizing a big lie was a homework assignment in the civics class at my California high school, the big lie being a standard ploy in propaganda. For the Nazis, one big lie was that so-called Aryans were a supposed master race, somehow ordained to rule the world. The defeat of the Nazis put that fantasy to rest. As World War II ended and the specter of the Cold War rose, with it came the threat that Russians, too, would make propaganda a weapon of their arsenal. And so high school students of my era learned to spot and counter malicious half-truths. As an inoculation against lies coming from Russia at the time, we learned to spot the rudiments of such disinformation, the big lie among them, Propaganda, as we learned in my civics class, relies on not just lies and misinformation, but also on distorted negative stereotypes, inflammatory terms, and other such tricks to manipulate people's opinions and beliefs in the service of some ideological agenda. Propaganda had played a major role in shaping the outlook of people ruled by the Axis powers. Hitler had argued that people would believe anything if it was repeated often enough, and if disconfirming information was routinely denied, silenced, or disputed with yet more lies. Frankel knew well the toxicity of propaganda deployed by the Nazis and their rise to power and beyond. It was aimed, he saw, at the very value of existence itself, asserting the worthlessness of life, at least for anyone like himself, who fell into a maligned category like gypsies, gays, Jews, and political dissidents, among others. When he was imprisoned in Nazi concentration camps, Frankel himself became a victim of such systematic lies, brutalized by guards who saw him and his fellow prisoners as less than human. When he gave the lectures in this book, a scant nine months after his liberation from the Turkheim labor camp, Frankel began his talk by decrying the negative propaganda that had destroyed any sense of meaning, human ethics, and the value of life. 
As he and all those in his Viennese audience knew well, the Nazis had honed their propaganda skills to a high level, but the kind of civics lesson that taught how to spot such distortions of truth is long gone. Throughout the centuries, as today, the same disinformation playbook has been put to use by authoritarian rulers worldwide. The signs are clear, shutting down opposition media, quashing dissident voices, and jailing journalists who dare to report something other than the prevailing party line. The danger of substituting for real, objective news instead sets of lies, flimsy conspiracy theories, and us-versus-them hatreds has been amplified by digital media, where those who share beliefs in some or other distorted outlook can find online refuge among others whose minds are likewise set in a sympathetic worldview and encounter no disconfirming evidence. Niche propaganda rules. I don't recall the specific big lie that turned up in my homework, but I can think of several that were revealed in successive decades. One was about smoking. The U.S. government had made a point of giving cigarettes to Allied troops in Europe and Asia, and so hooked a generation on a habit that, in the end, shortened their lives. When I was young, smoking was seen as glamorous. Advertising, too, can partake of the big lie. Now we know that habit heightens the likelihood of cancer and heart disease and an earlier death. Another big lie had to do with my local power company, PG&E. When I was young, that utility had the image of being trustworthy. These days, we know, once that public utility became a private company, greed in the bottom line meant that profits were taken rather than putting money into repairing and maintaining the outfit's infrastructure. And today, that once reliable organization has been the cause of countless wildfires and has gone into bankruptcy. The kind of lesson I had in spotting propaganda has long since dropped off the school curriculum. Yet it seems the time has come again when simple truths and basic human values need defending against the dangerous tides of hatred-spewing propagandists. Is it time again to bring back civics, lessons in speaking up, being a responsible citizen, and spotting today's big lies? That's happening a bit already. New initiatives all over the country, indeed the world, are working to ensure that middle and high school students are taught lessons in these crucial areas. In an age when media of every kind have become tools of persuasion and propaganda, these are the kinds of questions any of us might do well to ask. It might seem odd to readers today that Frankel spends a good deal of time refuting the assumption underlying euthanasia, not in its literal meaning, a good, gentle, and painless death, but rather in its perverse sense, that certain lives have no value, including those of the mentally ill and developmentally challenged, and so their deaths are justified. The Nazis had murdered such people, no doubt a fact quite fresh in Frankel's mind just months after the war ended. As a psychiatrist, Frankel would have been acutely aware of the euthanasia policy that killed people like his former charges at the institution where he worked before the war. Frankel argues that suffering, even incurable illness, and the inner dignity of dying one's own death can prove meaningful. In the face of death, for instance, there can still be an inner success, 
whether in maintaining a certain attitude or given the fulfillment of that person's life meaning. So, he contends, no one has the right to judge another person's life as meaningless or to deem another as unworthy of the right to life. Frankel himself had just recently been freed from the camps where the lives of inmates like him counted for nothing. While the Holocaust rightly counts as an evil perpetrated on ethnic, political, and religious groups deemed by the Nazis as worthless, the extermination policy was also applied to those with mental handicaps in huge numbers, several hundred thousand by some counts. The approach had, oddly, originated in the American eugenics movement, a form of social Darwinism that justified a society in ridding itself of those who were deemed unfit, often through forced sterilization. That argument was carried to its logical, if horrific, fulfillment by the Nazis. Murdering such people has blessedly largely vanished around the globe as a tactic for dealing with those once deemed undesirable. Today's disputes about euthanasia revolve around the good death sense of the term, in which a terminally ill person, typically in great pain, opts for suicide to put an end to their own suffering. Frankl's main contribution to the world of psychotherapy was what he called logotherapy, which treats psychological problems by helping people find meaning in their lives. Rather than just seeking happiness, he proposed we can seek a sense of purpose that life offers us. Happiness in itself does not qualify such a purpose. Pleasures do not give our life meaning. In contrast, he points out that even the dark and joyless episodes of our lives can be times when we mature and find meaning. He even posits that the more difficult, the more meaningful troubles and challenges can be. How we deal with the tough parts of our lives, he observes, shows who we are. If we can't change our fate, at least we can accept it, adapt, and possibly undergo inner growth even in the midst of troubles. This approach was part of a school known as existential therapy, which addresses the larger issues of life, like dealing with suffering and dying, all of which Frankl argued are better handled when a person has a clear sense of purpose. Existential therapies, including Frankl's version, blossomed particularly as part of the humanistic psychology movement that peaked in the 1970s and continued in successive decades. To be sure, a robust lineage of logotherapy and existential analysis continues to this day. There are three main ways people find fulfillment of their life meaning, in Frankl's view. First, there is action, such as creating a work, whether art or a labor of love, something that outlasts us and continues to have an impact. Second, he says, meaning can be found in appreciating nature, works of art, or simply loving people. Frankl cites Kierkegaard that the door to happiness always opens outward. The third lies in how a person adapts and reacts to unavoidable limits on their life possibilities, such as facing their own death or enduring a dreadful fate like the concentration camps. In short, our lives take on meaning through our actions, through loving and through suffering. Here I'm reminded of life advice from the Dalai Lama on the occasion of his 80th birthday when I wrote A Force for Good, the Dalai Lama's Vision for Our World. 
First, he recommended, gain some internal control over your own mind and how you react to life's difficulties. Then, adopt an ethic of compassion and altruism, the urge to help others. Finally, act on that outlook in whatever ways your life offers. Frankel cites a converging formulation from Rabbi Hillel almost 2,000 years ago. The translation I know best goes, If I am not for myself, who will be for me? If I am not for others, what am I? And if not now, when? For Frankel, this suggests that each of us has our unique life purpose and that serving others ennobles it. The scope and range of our actions matter less than how well we respond to the specific demands of our life circle. A common thread in these disparate words of wisdom comes down to the ways we respond to life's realities moment to moment, in the here and now, as revealing our purpose and an ethics of everyday life. Our lives continually pose the question of our life's meaning, a query we answer by how we respond to life. To be sure, Frankel saw human frailty, too. Each of us, he notes, is imperfect, but imperfect in our own way. He put a positive spin on this, too, concluding that our unique strengths and weaknesses make each of us uniquely irreplaceable. The great majority of those who, like Frankel, were liberated from Nazi concentration camps chose to leave for other countries rather than return to their former homes, where far too many neighbors had turned murderous. But Viktor Frankl chose to stay in his native Vienna after being freed and became head of neurology at a main hospital in Vienna. The Austrians he lived among often perplexed Frankl by saying they did not know a thing about the horrors of the camps he had barely survived. For Frankl, though, this alibi seemed flimsy. These people, he felt, had chosen not to know. Another survivor of the Nazis, the social psychologist Erwin Staub, was saved from a certain death by Raoul Wallenberg, the diplomat who made Swedish passports for thousands of desperate Hungarians, keeping them safe from the Nazis. Staub studied cruelty and hatred, and he found one of the roots of such evil to be the turning away, choosing not to see or know, of bystanders. That not knowing was read by perpetrators as a tacit approval. But if instead witnesses spoke up in protest of evil, Staub saw it made such acts more difficult for the evildoers. For Frankel, the not knowing he encountered in post-war Vienna was regarding the Nazi death camps scattered throughout that short-lived empire and the obliviousness of Viennese citizens to the fate of their own neighbors who were imprisoned and died in those camps. The underlying motive for not knowing, he points out, is to escape any sense of responsibility or guilt for those crimes. People in general, he saw, had been encouraged by their authoritarian rulers not to know, a fact of life today as well. That same plea of innocence, I had no idea, has contemporary resonance in the emergence of an intergenerational tension. Young people around the world are angry at older generations for leaving as a legacy to them a ruined planet, one where the momentum of environmental destruction will go on for decades, if not centuries. This 
environmental not knowing has gone on for centuries since the industrial revolution since then we have seen the invention of countless manufacturing platforms and processes most all of which came to be in an era when we had no idea of their ecological impacts advances in science and technology are driving change and so creating options that address the climate crisis and are being pursued actively across the globe and across the generations such disruptive truly green alternatives are one way to lessen the bleakness of earth 2.0 the planet in future decades a compelling fact of life for today's young were frankel with us today he died in 1997 he would no doubt be pleased that so many of today's younger people are choosing to know and are finding purpose and meaning in surfacing environmental facts and acting on them in light of the wholesale madness that afflicted too much of the civilized world during the great war that had just passed frankel felt the younger generation of his day no longer had the kind of role models that would give them a sense of enthusiastic idealism the energy that drives progress the young people who had witnessed the war he felt had seen too much cruelty pointless suffering and devastating loss to harbor a positive outlook let alone enthusiasm the years leading up to and including the war he noted had utterly discredited all principles leaving the nihilistic perception that the world itself lacked any substance frankel asked how it might be possible to resurrect and sustain concepts like a noble meaning in life which had been so wantonly demolished by a torrent of lies in another timely insight frankel saw that a materialistic view in which people end up mindlessly consuming and fixating on what they can buy next epitomizes a meaningless life as he put it where we are guzzling away without any thought of morality that very eagerness for consumption has become today a dominant world view one devoid of any greater meaning or inner purpose add to that the degradation of human dignity created by an economic system that had in the last few decades before frankel gave his talks relegated working men and women into mere means degrading them into tools of making money for someone else frankel saw this as an insult to human dignity arguing that a person should never become a means to an end and then there were the concentration camps where lives seen only as worthy of death were nevertheless exploited as slave labor to their biological limits from all that plus the simple fact of collusion with evil leaders european countries especially were pervaded by a collective sense of guilt on top of all this frankel was acutely aware as a camp survivor that the best among us did not return that knowledge could easily turn into a crippling survivor's guilt small wonder camp survivors like him had to relearn how to be happy at all from all these insults to reach any sense of meaning ensued an inner crisis as frankel sensed one that led to the comfortless worldview of a nihilistic existentialism think beckett's bleak post-war play waiting for godot an expression of the cynicism and hopelessness of those years as frankel put it it should not be a surprise if contemporary philosophy perceives the world as though it had no substance fast forward seven decades or more these days 
Various lines of evidence suggest that many young people today are putting their sense of meaning and purpose first, a development Frankel could not have foreseen given the dark lens that the horrors he had just survived gave him. But these days, those who recruit and hire for companies, for instance, report that more than any time in memory, the new generation of prospective employees shun working for places whose activities conflict with their personal values. Frankel's intuitive sense of how purpose matters has been borne out by a large body of research. For instance, having a sense of purpose in life offers a buffer against poor health. People with a life purpose, data shows, tend to live longer, and researchers find that having a purpose numbers among the pillars of well-being. In Beckett's play, Estragon and Vladimir, the two characters waiting for Godot, while trapped in a hopeless eternity, both make clumsy attempts at suicide to escape their senseless predicament. Frankel, in contrast, had founded a successful suicide prevention program in the decade before Nazis sent him to the death camps. In German colleges of those days, there had been batches of suicides by young students after they received their scores on the exam that determined what further training they would or would not get. But suicide, Frankel argued, represents the height of meaninglessness. Suicide, he wrote, is never able to solve a problem or to answer the question being asked of us by life. Frankel urged that instead of fixating on and exaggerating the catastrophic life consequences of poor scores, students instead contemplate their larger aspirations for their lives. His program, some sources report, reduced those suicides to zero in one of the first years it ran. Whoever has a why to live can bear almost any how, as the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche declared. Frankel takes this maxim as an explanation of the will to survive he noted in some fellow prisoners. Those who found a larger meaning and purpose in their lives, who had a dream of what they could contribute, were, in Frankel's view, more likely to survive than those who gave up. One crucial fact mattered here. Despite the cruelty visited on prisoners by the guards, the beatings, torture, and constant threat of death, there was one part of their lives that remained free their own minds. The hopes, imagination, and dreams of prisoners were up to them, despite their awful circumstances. This inner ability was real human freedom. People are prepared to starve, he saw, if starvation has a purpose or meaning. The lesson Frankel drew from this existential fact, our perspective on life's events, what we make of them, matters as much or more than what actually befalls us. Fate is what happens to us beyond our control, but we each are responsible for how we relate to those events. Frankel held these insights on the singular importance of a sense of meaning even before he underwent the horrors of camp life, though his years as a prisoner gave him even deeper conviction. When he was arrested and deported in 1941, he had sewn into the lining of his overcoat the manuscript of a book in which he argued for this view. He had hoped to publish that book one day, though he had to give up the coat and the unpublished book on his first day as a prisoner. And his desire to one day publish his views, along with his yearning to see his loved ones once again, 
gave him a personal purpose that helped keep him afloat. After the war, and with this optimistic outlook on living still intact, despite the brutalities of the camps, Frankel, in these lectures, called on people to strive toward a new humanity, even in the face of their losses, heartbreaks, and disenchantments. What is human, he argued, is still valid. Frankel recounts asking his students what they think gives a sense of purpose to one's own life. One student guessed it exactly, to help other people find their purpose. Frankel ended these lectures, and this book, by saying his entire purpose has been that any of us can say yes to life in spite of everything. <laughs>